Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Not even that interview could distract critics from a measly 1% pay rise for nurses and a multi-billion pound test and trace system that may not even work. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I really think that when it comes to uh, matters to do with the, the royal family, uh, the right thing for prime ministers to say is, uh, is nothing and nothing is the thing uh, that I propose uh, to say today about that, about that particular matter. For anyone who happened to miss it, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey, Meghan and Harry dropped a bombshell on Buckingham Palace with accusations of racism and the apparent silencing of a woman's struggles with her mental health. A government minister claimed that Prince Harry was blowing up his family. Boris Johnson, however, is opting, uncharacteristically, for silence. Will one of the most damaging royal stories in decades make its way down the mall towards Westminster? And how should MPs react? The Prime Minister will no doubt be asked to explain why £22 billion of taxpayers' money has been spent on a test and trace system that a report published this morning suggests might not even work. This price tag doesn't compare favourably, with the backlash to their other announcement that the government will give just a 1% pay rise to health workers. Also, with a potential rebellion looming over the government's plans to cut overseas aid, later on I chat to Conservative commentators about why this is a particularly tricky fight for a Tory government to take on. And finally, my colleague Severin Carell speaks to Labour's new leader in Scotland, Anasawa, about the party's uphill struggle at the Holyrood elections. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, children are finally back at school in England and there's already concerns about a surge in Covid cases once further lifting has been done. To discuss this and everything else, I'm joined by the chief leader writer at The Observer, Sonia Soda. Sonia, let's start with the news coming out this morning. There's a report by um, Parliament's spending watchdog, which is looking at at, um, the test and trace system, which basically they say shows no real evidence that it's actually reduced the level of COVID infection in the community, which is pretty astonishing to say that the government is still paying some consultants £6,000 a day to work on it. And I mean, obviously, the original idea was that a working test and trace would, would help prevent the need for lockdowns which it seems to manifestly have failed to do. How do we expect the government to to respond to this? 
Well, we've already had a bit of a response from uh, Dido Harding, who's the sort of head of uh, Test and Trace. And her response is, you know, 80% of the costs of Test and Trace are actually spent on testing and that they've been doing lots of contacts with people asking them to self-isolate and that that will have had an impact on community transmission. However, I mean, that only goes so far to answer MPs' concerns, obviously, because £37 has been allocated for Test and Trace over two years. Even when you take out the 80% that's for testing, that's a huge, huge sum of money. As you pointed out in your question there, Jess, the scheme is still incredibly reliant on consultants and some of these consultants are paid up to £6,000 a day, which is just going to, you know, it's probably a boggling amount of money for our listeners. And, you know, when MPs have taken a step back and looked at the evidence, I I think it's a bit unfair to expect that a a really good test and trace scheme would by itself have prevented um, the need for any lockdowns at all after last uh, May, June time, because you really would have needed to get infection rates, I think, down lower than they were and sort of over the summer for that. And there were other things, other factors that encourage infection rates to tick up. But you would have expected Test and Trace, I think, to do more than it has done in kind of slowing the spread of infection and kind of holding off the need for um, lockdowns. I think it was always um, kind of a bit unrealistic to think that we, we would avoid the need for them altogether. And so I do think that there are real questions, but I think the government response is going to be what we've seen from Dido Harding so far, which is a little bit kind of fingers and ears to the criticism. The NHS itself, despite Matt Hancock's insistence of calling it NHS test and trace, the NHS, when you speak to them, always likes to stress that it's not actually an NHS operation. Um, but people working in the NHS have just been told that they're, they're getting a 1% pay rise. That's got a significant backlash. And, you know, with the mind-boggling amounts of money that are spent on this test and trace system with sort of minimal results compared to the the results that actual nurses are, are having in tackling the pandemic. It feels like uh, something that can catch the public mood, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think it has. And I think one of the really weird things about this 1% pay rise for NHS workers is that we know that the NHS, Simon Stevens, a chief exec of NHS England, told us yesterday that the NHS had budgeted for a 2.1% pay rise because that is what was agreed with the government previously. It was what was in the NHS budget. So really, it sounds like someone in the government has taken a look at the NHS budget and thought, well, we may have budgeted for 2.1%, but actually we want to scale that back to 1%. And you just think, what were they thinking? First of all, on, um, you know, what were they thinking on a sort of political level, because public sympathy very much does lie with nurses, etc. But what were they thinking as well, just on a sort of moral level, given the year that NHS staff have had, you know, it, it just seems really, really mean to cut it back to what will be, given what inflation predictions are, actually a real terms pay cut. And you had government ministers yesterday saying, oh, well, you know, NHS nurses are pretty well paid. There are lots of people who would really envy that kind of secure job with that level of income. And you just think, are you tone deaf given what nurses have been put through over the last year? Of course, everyone's grateful who's got a secure job to have a secure job, but NHS nurses have really gone above and beyond. So I just think the government has kind of, you know, really made a rod for its own back on this one. 
Sonia, how can, do you think Labour can exploit this? We're coming up to the local elections. Uh, there's a launch uh, with Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner on Thursday, uh, where this is going to be the kind of front and centre of their campaign about the Tories and the NHS and social care. Do you think it'll make it, you know, the, particularly the pay issue will have a cut through with the public? I do. And I do think, you know, the NHS is sort of traditionally Labour's area of strength. It's the one area that Labour is always trusted with more than the Conservatives, if you look at public polling. And it's always been a bit of an area of weakness for the Conservatives. And it really does, I think that does really beg the question why the government seems to have laid this trap for itself. And, you know, as I was saying before, it's kind of both a moral issue, but it's a it seems a bit politically silly for it to do it. So I do think that Labour are going to be able to get some cut through at this. That said, you know, I think it will give Labour a little window of opportunity ahead of the local elections. But I don't think it's going to make, you know, it's not going to be the thing that sort of makes all the difference and propels Labour kind of five points ahead in the polls. The other big thing that happened on Monday, obviously, for for a lot of people listening, will be it's the day that thousands of kids went back to school in England. And we've heard a few warnings, first from the Prime Minister on Monday and also from uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance on Tuesday about what that could mean for infection rates and what that could also mean to, to, you know, for kind of kicking on the rest of the roadmap. We've got some Tories agitating to speed it up and they say, you know, we've got to watch what infection rates um, what happens to infection rates um, when schools go back? And do you think the government's taking enough precautions to kind of guard against a big spike after schools return? I think they are, actually. I think it's really interesting. I think they've been much more cautious coming out of this lockdown than the previous two lockdowns. And I think that's because they are genuinely listening to scientific advice and the caution that their scientific advisors are urging this time. Whereas I think after both of the previous lockdowns, they went too quickly and they were they were too sort of incautious. So I think the things that they're doing this time round, which are good are that they are leaving long gaps between sort of each phase of the reopening. I mean, there are some who argue that they could be even more cautious, but I think they're think they're being much more cautious than they've been in the past. And what leaving a five-week gap between the main phases allows you to do is to sort of take four weeks to see the impact of something like schools reopening or hospitality reopening in a limited way. And then you can sort of adjust up and down as necessary. And there's a sort of extra week's grace period for you to be able to give businesses a bit of notice. So I think that is a real difference because I think, you know, last summer scientists were saying the government, I mean, the government just sort of did everything in one big whoosh, it felt like. And scientists were saying this is really troubling because when infection rates start ticking up again, as pretty much as lots of people thought was inevitable, we won't really know what it was that led to that. We won't have that information for the future. So I do think they're being a lot more cautious this time, and rightly so. That's not to say that they're not coming under political pressure from the right of their party to go more quickly, but I I do think they're being more cautious this time. Sticking with Monday, happened to be International Women's Day. There was a big event on Monday, but we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later. But Boris Johnson also talked about his cabinet. His spokesman said that there could be uh, a chance for a reshuffle when it comes and uh, specifically said that the Prime Minister was looking to bring more women 
into the mix. There's just five at the moment. Do you think that was just a kind of off the cuff pandering to the day or, or, you know, the International Women's Day? Or do you do you think that there is, you know, some realisation in government that the cabinet doesn't really reflect the country? I mean, I hope the realisation is genuine. It did feel a little tokenistic doing it on International Women's Day. And I think what women like me would say to the government is, why have you left it till now? It's been really obvious through this pandemic that it's been the vast, you know, the vast majority of people taking the key decisions have been male ministers and male advisors. And you can see that, I think, in the way that not a lot of thought has been given to the impact of this pandemic on women who have disproportionately taken up the bulk of the homeschooling, taken up the bulk of the childcare or the extra housework. We know from surveys that this is what's going on and that actually the gender balance, um, both kind of in terms of work and kind of domestic labour, has become kind of more skewed towards against women, as it were. So and I think that's partly a facet of people making decisions who just don't really understand how kind of normal families who are kind of really struggling to manage this and struggling to manage homeschooling live. So to me, I have to say it feels a bit tokenistic and rings a bit hollow because if you were a government that really cared about this, a prime minister that really cared about it, you would have done this ages ago. I don't think we can pass this this chat by by without discussing um, what does have pretty explosive political consequences, actually, which is the the interview with Meghan and Harry on Oprah that was aired on Monday night, which Boris Johnson is characteristically, uncharacteristically rather, you know, saying no comment, uh, despite, you know, having commented, as we know, regularly on other other royal uh, incidents. And Buckingham Palace has said they, they didn't realise the extent of the hardships the couple have been through. I mean, were you expecting, I suppose, a bit more from, from Boris Johnson on this and particularly it seems slightly off that he's not even prepared to talk about allegations of racism and about how someone's mental health suffered so much that they they said that they felt suicidal yeah i did think it was a bit strange and and that's because you know this isn't a private family that these things are happening in this is a royal family it's the institution that provides our head of state that has a constitutional role So there is a massive public interest in how this family conducts its affairs, how it treats its members, which, you know, like it or not, you just can't get away from. It's not like we're watching some private family drama play out. This is something that that concerns the kind of infrastructure of the British state. And those are such, such serious kind of things that Meghan and Harry said about the racism on the one hand and the lack of support with um, mental health issues on the other, that I do think it was a bit chicken of the Prime Minister, really, to just kind of indicate that he absolutely wanted to stay out of it. But I'm not sure how sustainable that is. We'll have to see. I think it depends partly on the extent to which the palace statement sort of just shuts this thing down. I think it was very clear from the palace statement that they were trying to sort of say, right, this is a private matter. Are we going to sort of deal with this internally? And I I personally think that that just doesn't go far enough because it doesn't reflect the fact that they are a public institution. Sonia Sadith, as always, thanks ever so much for joining me. No problem. After the break, we'll hear from the new leader of the Scottish Labour Party on his thoughts on devolution. And we'll hear about how the Conservatives are preparing for battle over overseas aid. We'll be right back.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Two weeks ago, the Scottish Labour Party elected a new leader, Anasawa. With crucial elections approaching fast, Sawa has a lot to prove as the Labour Party in Scotland has fallen behind the SNP and the Conservatives in the polls. The SNP want the elections in May to be a springboard for another independence referendum. And on Tuesday, we learned that Labour had dropped one of its candidates, Holly Cameron, after she said that a second independence referendum could take place within the next couple of years. Sawa believes he knows what the Scottish public really wants, so what are his aims and his thoughts about the year ahead? Severin Carell, the Guardian Scotland editor, spoke to Anas when he was running in between meetings at Holyrood. So, Anas, before we discuss Scottish Labour's current challenges, could we start with some family history? Your father, Mohammed Sawa, was the UK's first Muslim MP and he held the seat of Glasgow Central for Labour. And that's where you succeeded him in 2010. Is politics the family business? Well, look, I'm very proud of who my, my father is. I'm very proud of his um, achievements. Um, I'm very proud of what he's always instilling us in terms of um, caring for those that are uh, less fortunate, being true around challenging poverty and creating opportunity. So whilst I respect him, whilst I'm proud of him, um, I am in politics in my, in my own right and very much my own person. And, you know, I would point out that there are, there are lots of families uh, that have had uh, political connections before, either parents and children. So on that basis, and you regard yourself as the first person of colour, the first South Asian to be elected a party leader for a major UK party. And yet you've experienced racism throughout your career and you've watched your father endure it too. You said in your acceptance speech when you were elected Scottish Labour leader last month that the fight for equality is far from over. What did you mean by that, and how can that be fixed? So, I mean, it is a um, proud moment um, for for our diverse communities um, in Scotland and from the messages I've been getting further afield in Scotland as well that we um, have elected a, a leader from a South Asian background and Muslim heritage. The point I'm making about the fight for equality not being over is we've elected female leaders before, we've had female prime ministers before, we have a female first minister, but that doesn't mean that the fight for gender equality is is over. There's still a huge uh, way to go. And the exact same way around racism, Islamophobia, other forms of prejudice. Uh, yes, um, I hope it acts as a way of, of inspiring others. It acts as a demonstration that you can um, come forward and you can succeed. But we've got to recognise there are still huge structural barriers for, for women, for people from a BME background, for people from an LGBT background, 
people from different uh, faiths. So we've still got a, a massive job of work to do to try and create a fairer, more equal, more open, more diverse society here in Scotland and across the UK. Back to today, there's an election for Holyrood on the 6th of May. That's just eight weeks away. And Labour faces a big battle making itself relevant. The SNP are riding high in the back of Sturgeon's performance during the COVID pandemic and, fuelled by Scotland's dislike for Brexit, are dominating the constitutional debate. Then you've got the Tories, and they're buoyant thanks to their COVID vaccination successes and are spending billions of pounds post-Brexit. Where does Labour fit in all this? Where's your voice? The, the key part is you've got the SNP and the Tories who want to take us back to the old arguments coming through COVID and where Labour under my leadership um, is focused on what unites us as a country rather than what divides us. Um, I don't want us to go back to the old arguments. I want us to focus on rebuilding our country, bringing our country back together again, healing the wounds in our country, recognising that this has been a collective trauma in the last year that we've got to try and overcome together. But in terms of the election, how the election is framed, Look, what's going to happen in the election is I fear you're going to have both the Tories and the SNP entrenching to their usual positions pre-COVID. Do we really want to go back to those old fights and those arguments? No, I don't think we do. And therefore, we want a recovery, a focus on recovery that pulls our country together rather than pulls our country apart. And there's two parts to that. Seb, one part is delivering a recovery that works for everyone. I don't think we can, well, I know we can't expect the Tories to, to help deliver a recovery that works for everyone. They, they support the current structural inequalities that exist in our economy. And we can't rely on the SNP to deliver a recovery that works for everyone because in, in the same breath they talk about recovery, they also talk about going back to the old arguments around having another independence referendum, particularly this year in the midst of uh, coming through COVID. I don't think that's where the people are. What, what people care about right now is keeping themselves safe and they're the priorities that we're going to have going into the election um, on, a, on a clear platform of wanting to bring our country together. Okay, that's all very well. But the question for a lot of Scottish voters is going to be, why is Labour relevant? You haven't been in power in Westminster for more than a decade. You haven't been in power in Scotland for 14 years. Why should they put their trust in you, given the fact that the polls consistently put you third behind the Tories and the Tories behind the SNP? I want us to change that. And look, I, I and when I did my acceptance speech last week, it was very candid and very clear that I accepted that in recent times the Scottish people hadn't had the Labour Party they deserve and that I'm going to work day and night to change that. I'm absolutely determined to do that. But I, I think there is a real opening for the Labour Party and a real space for the Labour Party to focus on people's priorities, to talk about how we rebuild our country in a way that wants to reunite us rather than pull us further apart. The instincts of the Tories and the SNP are, are against this. Um, and, and I think there is a clear opening for, for us as a Labour Party that's talking about the issues that matter to people to be able to put that front and centre in this election. So Anas, last week, Labour's first minister in Wales, Mark Drakeford, said he, that he felt the United Kingdom was, quotes, as it is, is over, close quotes. What do you think about this? Do you agree, agree with Drakeford that the UK should in fact become what he described as a voluntary association of four nations? Because until now, Labour have basically been absent in the constitutional debate. It appears to have had nothing to say, no dynamic proposals. What is Labour going to do to insert itself into this conversation? I think the, the UK is in need of major and urgent reform. I think you see that through COVID. I think you saw that when you saw Andy Burnham very passionately, very movingly talking about the support that was coming to Greater Manchester. Um, I, I think there is a, a real divide 
and a disconnect that people feel living in London, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester, Cardiff, just like they do for people living where I am at the moment in Glasgow or you are in Edinburgh and other parts of, of, of Scotland. There is a disconnect, a fundamental disconnect. And and as part of delivering a recovery that works for everyone, we have got to devolve power out of Westminster into our local communities, into our nations and regions. And likewise, in Scotland, we've got to devolve power out of the Scottish Parliament and to our, our local authorities across the country. So it is a recovery that works for people that live in rural, urban, coastal, island communities across across the country. So, you know, we have a constitutional uh, commission that was announced by Keir Starmer before I came into into post and when I was the party's constitutional spokesperson. Uh, that's being advised by, by Gordon Brown. Um, it's going to have representation from people across um, the whole of the UK um, to demonstrate that the, the fact that the whole UK needs to uh, reform itself. So, so I, I don't shy away from that. I think we, we absolutely do need reform. The, the challenge, I would say, is we need that reform because it helps build our recovery, but it can't be a distraction from our recovery. It can't be something that stops the recovery from happening because we we end up just having politicians arguing about where powers lie and helping to debate what we can't do rather than what we can do. I want us to, to focus in Scotland on what we can do as well as strengthening devolution. Labour is the party of devolution. Independence is not the end point of devolution. Independence ends devolution. And the Conservatives have never been supporters of devolution. Boris Johnson himself has said that he believes devolution is, in his words, a disaster. He can't be expected to defend devolution. Uh, devolution is a labour concept. It's a labour priority. It's a labour principle. And it's one I want us to strengthen. But what I don't understand, though, is when, when you've tackled this particular conversation or this topic over the last week or two, you keep on referring to the quest for independence as an old argument. And there are two issues about that. Firstly, you seem to be accepting it isn't an old argument. It's a current argument. It's an argument about where the Scottish people feel power should be best held and distributed from. But also for Labour, it seems to me it's pretty risky that saying to 50% of the Scottish electorate who presently support independence, that effectively they're looking backwards. They think these arguments are pretty real. Surely you do too, that you actually do have to come up with something concrete and specific. What I would challenge is, is that I, I think we in the political bubble um, often get caught up in throwing out titles or slogan, whether it be um, federalism, whether it be Devo Max, whether it be other things. I, I support strengthening devolution. I, I'm a devolutionist. I'm part of the devolution generation. I want us to strengthen devolution. But the idea that people sitting at home are thinking, I wonder where X, Y, or Z power lies, is, I don't think, true. Honestly, do we, do we really think coming through COVID and the collective trauma of COVID, we should turn our attention to an independence referendum, particularly in the months that follow? Are we really saying that is the Scottish people's priority? Are we really saying that's how we rebuild the country, that we go back to presenting binary choices and forcing people to pick a side? I, don't, I don't, generally do not think that is credible. Um, instead, I think we should be talking about how we rebuild our country. And one of the reasons why, you know, the uh, you reference the polls is, you know, people haven't had a people haven't been given a credible choice. There are lots of people who um, who wouldn't regard themselves as as nationalists, but who have been curious about the idea of independence or support and supported independence or thinking about supporting the SNP because they haven't had a credible alternative. And that's what I see as my job when people's lives and livelihoods are still at risk.
and Asawa, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. And thanks also to the truck that decided to so helpfully reverse outside of Anas's window at the end there. Last week, there was a backlash about the government's decision to cut aid spending to Yemen, which will receive £87 million this year, down from £164 million in 2020. In a country struggling with a growing humanitarian crisis brought on by war and famine, this would be a huge loss of income that they once believed they could rely on. It all stems from Rishi Sunak's decision last year to cut foreign aid from 0.7% to 0.5% of gross national income. And the government has argued that the cut will be temporary and is necessary given the unprecedented financial situation that the country finds itself in after being hit by a pandemic. There's just one problem. The government's commitment to spending 0.7% of its GNI on aid is enshrined in law, so they should have to put this to a vote in Parliament. And it's likely, however, that there would be enough backbench rebels in the Conservatives to defeat it. So will the government try and swerve a vote? To discuss all potential outcomes, I spoke to Henry Hill, the news editor of Conservative Home, and Laura Round, a former special advisor at the Department for International Development, which merged with the Foreign Office last summer. Laura and Henry, thanks so much for joining us. So last November, when he was presenting the the spending review, Rishi Sunak said that there would be a cut to foreign aid from 0.7% of national income to to 0.5%, which does result in, in billions of pounds out of Britain's aid budget. And that's we've seen that kind of come to a head in the last week or so because of the significant uproar there's been about the UK's commitment to, to Yemen um, and a lot of money coming out of that budget. But I guess I'll start with by asking both of you what your initial take on that decision at the spending review was and how you feel minds might be being changed when you see those those cuts come across in real terms like like with the Yemen budget. Laura, do you want, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I was I was slightly surprised in in some ways. Of course, there was a manifesto pledge which was being broken. I think last year, when the merger of the two departments was announced, that was less of a surprise. Um, everyone knew that Boris Johnson's personal view was that the two departments would be stronger united. And in many ways, I, I share that view. However, as long as development is at the heart of of that new department, because we have an incredible reputation abroad, which I never realised until working in DFID. It really is a, a real asset to our UK foreign policy arsenal. And you know, it's a valuable soft power asset, but also we just have huge expertise within our civil service when it comes to international development. So it's a real source of pride. And um, as I'm sure we'll come to today, it is a source of a content. You know, it's it's an, an issue that many conservatives within the party might disagree on, but it is also a, a quite high profile announcement that was made and a bid to sort of show our progressive credentials under David Cameron, etc. So yeah, I was surprised and disappointed. Having said that, we are in an incredibly difficult situation and are being forced to make very, very difficult decisions. So I do sympathise with the Treasury on that as well. Henry, Boris Johnson kind of set that out quite starkly, didn't he, in his response to Keir Starmer at PMQs last week, where he said that the Labour leader was prioritising Yemen over the UK. Is that the calculation that he's made, that this is the kind of cut that the British people will want to see? Yes, it's quite clear that the Chancellor is is getting into the mode of paying back 
COVID-19 spending. Now, the economists can debate the wisdom or necessity of doing that now, but that's clearly where the government is. And it's just a fact that if you look at where you know, we, we published polling uh, or analysis of polling by James Frain on Conservative Home last month, and if you look at where most voters are, and this includes Labour voters, Remain voters, Leavers, Tory voters, all of them expect basically a foreign aid cut if the government's going to be cutting spending. And I think it would be politically incredibly difficult for the government to engage in any kind of fiscal retrenchment, you know, especially something as high profile and controversial as the 1% NHS pay increase, whilst not cutting aid spending. It's, it's essentially a political necessity for, the, for, for a Conservative government, given where their voters are. Laura, what do you think of that? Do you think that Conservative voters share this and have the voter base sort of moved significantly on this since David Cameron or was he just sort of going against what voters wanted? So I think, you know, there's a lot of um, vocal Conservative MPs who are, uh, who feel very passionately about this and who are making, uh, you know, a big deal out of it. There are plenty of Conservative members who also feel strongly about it. But what's really interesting, I think, is polling that the Coalition for Global Prosperity did recently, which was looking at voters in the red wall seats who voted Conservative in the last election, but did not vote Conservative before. So the real sort of swing voters. And the responses were, you know, quite possibly surprising uh, in and in, in the sense that, you know, 86% stated that it was important for the UK to provide disaster relief and humanitarian assistance. 86%, that's quite, that's a very high number. And um, 88% said it was important to promote British value like democracy and the rule of law and all those things. But I think, you know, 86% is really, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to disaster relief, is at the, the, the core of Yemen. Uh, having said that, again, you know, I don't think the Conservative Party has changed. I don't think the views have changed. I think the situation we're in has changed significantly. Uh, and so, of course, we do operate in a very different context. Over the weekend, there was this leak in on the website Open Democracy that, that suggested that, and in a way, it's, I suppose, predictable that these cuts were also being planned in aid for places like Somalia, Syria, uh, South Sudan, places, you know, which we know are in the grip of real horror and conflict. How much do you think this will become sort of a part of the news cycle that we generally accepted? Or, or, or do you think, Henry, that it's going to lead to growing conservative opposition? I mean, I, I suppose we don't yet know if there's going to be a vote and we'll come on to that in a minute. But do you think that's that's fueling the opposition or is it the same people who would always have been opposed? I think there is a, a well-developed caucus, uh, mainly on the conservative backbenches at the minute, which is very pro the sort of Cameron era attitude towards overseas development and will be keen on resisting this. Uh, we're going to come on to the parliamentary arithmetic later, so I'll set that aside. But I honestly don't think, based on where most of the voters are and where the government's what the government's calculations are, that the government will be seriously threatened by this. I think you know it's it's one thing to have polling that says yes, in 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 isolation, overseas development is important. I think everyone agrees on that. But the question is, what happens when you have to prioritise X over Y? And I think those are the questions that the government's really looking at when it comes to the public response. My personal hunch, and I might be wrong about this, is that the government will aim to get back to the 0.7%. We've seen the way that they've you know, deferred tax increases for two years, and the expectation is that they'll try and use um, up growth to justify not bringing those in. I think that the 0.7% target does send an important signal, not maybe to the majority of Conservative voters, but there's definitely an important minority of Conservative voters, these kind of 
I, you know, I don't want to define them entirely by their EU vote, but Remainers, you know, these people who voted for David Cameron's Conservative Party, but have seemed less keen on Boris Johnson's. And I think it does send an important signal to them. But, but no, I don't expect parliamentary uh, opposition to overturn this this decision. Do you think, Laura, you know, coming from a perspective of someone who's seen uh, from inside the department what good aid can do when it's when it's properly directed, do you think that this crisis is is what the legislation is talking about when it says that in extreme circumstances we shouldn't be meeting this goal or or, or it's acceptable not to meet the goal? Well, I mean, nobody really knows the answer to that. And of course, that is what's being disputed. And um, Andrew Mitchell is is saying, you know, he'll, he'll uh, look into us legally and see if they, they could do a judicial review. Um, but, you know, that is, of course, hotly contested. From when I was there, obviously, we were never in this in a situation like this. But there was, it felt very stringent in what you could and couldn't do. The advice was very strong on that. However, we are in a pandemic. So, you know, I think the circumstances probably are very, you know, are strong enough to make to make that case. Having said that, I totally agree with Henry just now, where he suspects they will go you know, even if they do have to go down to 0.5 and are able to do that with or without a vote, they will have to signal that they'll go back to 0.7. And I think that is ties back to the factors to the role that international development plays within our arsenal of foreign policy. And at a year, in a year where we are hosting G7, COP26, the Education Summit and playing a lead role in the UN National Security Council, following leaving the European Union, it is a real shame, I think, to not show our leadership position. And, you know, of course, these decisions on funding uh, need to be made and, and they're hard, but there are other ways to signal that you are still, you know, still serious about this agenda. And that can be through diplomacy, it can be through narrative building, it can be by bringing your stakeholders on board, which following the merger, personally, I feel like I'd love to see more of. And I think, obviously, the Foreign Secretary has so much on his plate. I mean, these used to be two individual full-time jobs that take up a lot of oxygen and time and dedication. And I wonder whether that is something that this government needs to sort of reassess as to how, going forward, do you make sure that development is is clearly at the heart of this new department and signalled signalling that to the outside world. Henry, how much do you do you think it's a concern that Britain appears to be stepping back in this regard? This is this is supposed to be the year of a new global Britain. We're hosting the G7, COP26, and we've got a new American administration where the emphasis is is clearly changing in respect to America's role in the world. Um, it couldn't be more different. Do you think that this sends the kind of signal that that might worry international partners i honestly i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not an expert on what, on on that so maybe but i don't think so i think the government's reasoning is quite clear and you know the uk is in extraordinary financial circumstances and it's not as if it's you know i know 0.7 to 0.5 is a substantial cut but there's no suggestion i don't think that it's going to be permanent and the 0.5% is still a, is still a really substantial commitment and then you've got the stuff that the united kingdom is doing on vaccines so i think that I think that the signal the government is sending is that actually no you know the this isn't 
permanent. This doesn't represent a permanent downgrading of Britain's ambitions. This represents a response to the crisis. I personally, you know, hope that over the course of this parliament, the government does sort of do more to reform the overseas aid, overseas aid spending. I think that one really worthwhile thing they could do maybe, which would actually help in circumstances like this, would be to make the 0.7% target a five-year target, because that would mean that you could react to emergencies such as this one and then simply offset the spending uh, in future years. And it would also mean that there was less pressure which you've sometimes seen in the past, and this is one of the things that's given aid a bad reputation amongst parts of the Conservative Party, when you've been coming up to the financial year-end deadline and people have found that DFID was having to get money out of the door and sometimes spent that unwisely. So I think the government could definitely do more. But no, I don't think this really sends a long-term signal about what, about what Britain is about. I think it's inevitable, just given where the politics are, that during this crisis, there'll be a reduction. But as I said earlier, I do expect the government to bring the commitment back up to 0.7%. Laura, is the is there an argument, and have you, you know, did you did you feel in your time there that there is um, some argument for revisiting a kind of the way that targets are met, not just a kind of raw figure of zero point seven, which has become this totemic thing, uh, where you might end up spending more than that, you might end up spending le- less than that, and and the departments should have some flexibility on it. I mean, there are certainly strong arguments to be made for that. However, I think. The, a lot of the criticism is in many ways, I think, slightly dated in the sense that um, DFID actually, ha- you know, because I, I shared that view when I came into the department and then sat down with you know, a finance team and they explained how they go about this and plan it and, and um, avoid uh, basically you know, what the criticism is that, you know, they all of a sudden have to push things out of the door at the last minute, which may have been able to be spent better. Actually, they do plan incredibly well. And um, I think that's that's massively improved over the last years. The arguments just need to be made stronger. And I think we, we need to do a better job at demonstrating what this money is doing and achieving overseas, um, which is, you know, in our national interest in the UK. Big thanks to Henry Hill of Conservative Home and to Laura Rand. But that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland speaks to Janae Nelson of the NAACP Legal Defence Fund about the current struggles we're seeing in the US over voting rights for all Americans. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Sonia Soda, Anasawa, Severin Carell, Henry Hill and Laura Rand. The producer is Amy Leibovitz. I'm Jessica Elgott and please look after yourselves. Thanks as always for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 